The Guardian. I'm here with my colleague Michael Safi for day seven of the Sydney Siege Inquest. It's the second week. How are you feeling, Michael? Well, I'm not going to lie to you, Monica. It's getting tough. We're in the uh, we're in the minutiae of things now, and I think. Um, Particularly journalists on the internet, we love the superlative. Everything needs to be bigger and brighter and exclusive and the only one. And this is um, very much not that. We're sort of tinkering around the edges of Manharon Monus's checkered life. We're just hearing little bits about his girlfriend or rather a woman he kind of courted for six years. We're hearing about what business associates thought of him. Interestingly today, we heard um, about his contact with the Seven Network. He um, was not a big fan, probably not the only person I'd say, but not a big fan of, of, of Today Tonight, the uh, somewhat infamous current affairs show, which I discovered today is apparently still on in the West, but it's been cancelled um, up and down the, the East Coast. Um, I did not know that. Well, there you go. Um, apparently, in 2010, they ran a story about Manharon Monus. It was called uh, Shake Attack, and it was about his... Uh, those those despicable letters he was sending to the families of deceased soldiers. And look, as far as today, tonight's stories go, uh, it wasn't a bad one. Um, and it did cause him to sort of come out of the woodwork because until then he had been evading, um, you know, any attempts by reporters to, or, you know, critical reporters to speak to him. But he uh, did eventually um, write some letters to ACMA, the kind of what the broadcasting watchdog about this report. Um and a couple of years before that, he had taken to protesting outside uh, the Channel 7 studios in where other than, than Martin Place, just across the road from the Lint Cafe where he kind of met his end. Um, and we were told, you know, a couple of a couple of kind of interesting facts about that. There was that he um, seemed to kind of bear a particular grudge towards Melissa Doyle and David Koch, who were otherwise known as Mel and Koshy, the hosts of, of Sunrise. Um because of a kind of offhand reference they had made during a story about, do you, do you remember Mohammed Hanif, the um, the Indian doctor who was he was he was thought to be a terrorist and basically arrested, and it turned out he was completely uh, innocent. Um, nonetheless, uh, Manharon Monas took exception to something that was said in the story and took to holding some pretty aggressive protests outside um, ch- the, the Seven Network Studios. And I thought it was interesting. You said in your blog that um, there was an offhand comment made about that it's not so it's not irregular that the hosts have to be moved inside because of security reasons that's right once a week once, once a week, a they're, week? They're, yeah they're not able to host to, to do outside broadcasts because of some security threat i mean they um, air five close. days a week so that's 20 percent. yeah time. exactly exactly you know i don't know i mean they must have a kind of fairly low bar for that because when they're doing it they are out in public and you, you know anyone could jump in front of the camera, you know, God forbid, actually try to attack one of the hosts. And so they have such a massive audience. I do imagine it, it, sometimes they must say something uh, which can seem um, innocent to us, but surely there's always going to be a, a, a small group or an individual who takes offence to something. They, yeah, exactly. They Look, the other thing that I thought made today uh, notable was that we heard from, I think probably we got the closest to a, like a friend of Manharon Monus speaking today and it was... Um, Look, there were two people. One was a, a gentleman called Ahmed um, Alay, Alay, who is a um, an Iranian businessman living in Australia. Um, he runs sort of a network of, of car washes, and it seemed that he, you know, he's a, another one of these people who um, saw Manharon Monas, and despite his weirdness and his kind of odd behaviour, decided he would take it upon himself to try to help the guy. Um, so he would help him. Um, you know, he helped him to kind of get a house. He would have him over for dinner. Um, and we heard that um, that Monus uh, 
in 2000 and I believe it was 11 basically came to him and said, look, I've got $2 million in cash. You know, you're a savvy businessman. Can you tell me how to invest it? Um, and he asked this businessman for $500,000 and said like between the two of us, we can invest in something and, you know, we'll split it accordingly and, you know, we'll both make heaps of money. But, um, you know, he never revealed where he got this $2 million in cash or whether he really had it to begin with. And did this friend speak in terms of his impressions of Monus? Uh, he did. I mean, he, he, he spoke uh, with a fairly thick accent and he was relying on an, an, an interpreter for some of the time. One of the things he said that was interesting was that, um, you know, he, he'd been told that um, Monus was a, a sheikh who had fled Iran because he'd fallen out with the regime. And he said this surprised him because all the people he knew in Australia had fled Iran because of the sheikhs. And he, he was a guy who was a sheikh himself who would run away from the country. So he was always a little bit suspicious about, about you know, this backstory that, that um, uh, Monus had told him. Um, the other person we heard from was a woman called Amanda Morsi, who I have to say I feel, I feel a little bad for because... You know, she, in, you know, what must surely rank as, you know, possibly the worst setups in history. One of, <laughs> um, one of her friends said, hey, I know this guy, um, you know, at the time his name was Michael Hayson. Uh, he's Muslim, you're Muslim, maybe you guys will hit it off. Um, and so she went and met him and she discovered that, or he told her that he was a Romanian in his mid-30s. Um, neither, of those, neither of those things were true. Um, and for six months, they sort of you know, awkwardly dated, I suppose. He would, you know, take her out. But I saw that they never actually spent any time one-on-one. It was always in group situations. Yeah, that's right. Does that's that right. really count as a date? Then? Well, I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a good question, Monica. I, I think uh, maybe it doesn't. But I suppose, um, you know, that would be a saving grace because I've already seen her described as his girlfriend in, oh, in some dear. news reports, which I'm sure <laughs> she's completely appalled by. But, um, you know, what was interesting is she said that he seemed to be quite cashed up that he drove um, three cars. He gave her, you know, big gold necklaces. He was very generous, always offering to pay for clothes, even a bedroom suite. Um, But that, you know, she said like most people, he kind of, there was something odd about him and he kind of stuck out like a sore thumb. And even though among her friends, um, you know, he would be drinking, he would be dressed in Western clothes. He didn't have his, his kind of full beard. Um, he was still a guy who didn't quite fit in. And she said that was something that she felt that he wanted to do. He just wanted to find some, you know, some subculture that he fit into. And it kind of plays into this bigger theme of Manharon Monas being on some level quite lost. Quite like, you know, he's he's so many different things to so many different uh, people. Um, and you kind of wonder whether even he himself had a sense of, of who he was. So I think that this is kind of getting to the heart of what perhaps – why this inquiry would be interesting to the public because we want to know what kind of person could commit this kind of act, right? Is is this person doing it because he's lonely, because he's lost? We've heard words like narcissistic used. We want to know um, what drives a man to do an act like this. And do you think that we have at all answered that question yet? Well, I kind of waver on this each day and you know certainly uh, the fact he was suffering from some sort of mental illness whether it was schizophrenia anxiety depression look they're all certainly factors but you know a part of me thinks that that he's a guy who is willing to kind of adopt the kind of symbols and like the motifs of any subculture that he's trying to fit into whether that be bikers whether that be kind of an Australian you know a kind of everyday sort of Australian who goes out and drinks and wears casual and wears western clothes and um 
And I think, you know, we have a couple of years ago this incredibly powerful motif come along, which is Islamic State, which which has which will kind of offer you um, a sense of brotherhood, offer you kind of a sense of purpose and and kind of will uh, have a very clear sort of map about how you can be one of them. And it's, you know, to uh, pledge allegiance to the caliph and uh, take this flag and go out and commit some sort of spectacular act of, of terrorism. And so... You know, we've been wavering on this question of was it a terrorist attack or not? And, and today was the one day where I kind of thought, you know, after a long record of thinking there's no way this was a terrorist attack. Today I thought, well, maybe this guy saw an Islamic State, you know, this, this kind of perverse sort of community that would finally accept him. And the terms of, of membership were, were him doing, you know, what he did last December. I have to say, though, I feel like I don't, I have not yet had a strong impression of precisely what his thoughts were about ISIS or about terrorism. Um, so far, we've only had his interactions with other people where he will often deny that he's a terrorist. And, um, you know, he, he had that statement yesterday about how history will show that he's not a terrorist, his history in Iran. So, can you speak a little bit about? things that you've heard over so far about his thoughts about terrorism itself. Yeah, so so far we've heard um, very little about that actually. We, we know he had no contact at all with Islamic State. Um, he constantly referred to the terrorism of others. Um, we, we did see though the video that he had produced along with, um, with two associates um, around the time that he was sending those offensive letters to the families of, of, um, of deceased soldiers. And I guess what struck me about it, this is, you know, this is about 2010, was that he did have a pretty kind of well-developed sort of jihadi worldview. Um, he didn't actually speak in that video. It was two women. But, you know, they both talked about the way that they um, honoured the families of the Bali bombers, for example, um, the way that they, they, they sort of paid tribute to kind of various figures in Al-Qaeda, people who were sort of known to be kind of, you know, Islamic jihadi terrorists. So, you know, he was certainly steeped in, in kind of the sort of language and the sort of the ideas of, of, of that whole movement. What we know, it hasn't come up in the inquest, but we also know that in the days before the siege, he also pledged allegiance formally to the head of, of ISIS. Um, and perhaps, you know, perhaps it'd be worth revisiting um, that website if we can find it and see what reference it does actually make to, to his views on ISIS because maybe he did... You know, I, again, I have this sense that, that in ISIS he sees this group that you know, will basically accept him unconditionally. They don't care that he's weird. They don't care that he's kind of, you know, um, someone who most people most people spend their lives trying to avoid. And and they offer him a meeting, which is you can kind of help fight this war against the West. This war, yeah. See, and even though he didn't have any formal ties to ISIS, this question of whether he was inspired by ISIS is still, I think, really relevant. And yet it does seem like the, um, you know... Jeremy Gormley, who who is the, the council assistant, exactly yeah. the council assistant, has has kind of either downplayed it or chosen not to really go deep into this so far. Anyway, yeah, I I, th I think I mean he's doing a really I think adm admirable job, Jeremy Gormley. And today we saw it uh, again when he was speaking with um, the uh, Today Tonight journalist who um, helped to put together the kind of original story about Monas. His name was David Richardson. Um, and one of the things he made sure to ask uh, Richardson was, you know, when you were inquiring about this person calling themselves uh, Sheikh Haron, you went to the, you know, you went to prominent members um, of kind of Australia's Muslim communities. 
And so you spoke to people like Kaiser Trad and you spoke to the Grand Mufti and he, he actually asked him sp- uh, specifically, you know, what did they think of what Monus was doing? Um, and, the, and Richardson replied, uh, I think like the families who received the letters, they weren't impressed. And again, we see this, this attempt by Gormley to uh, make sure that the record shows that even if we, we find evidence that Monus believed he was acting um, for Islam, that actually the kind of Islam that he speaks for is completely alien to you know, the vast, vast majority of Australian Muslims. So, thanks, Michael. You'll be back tomorrow live blogging The Siege. That's Um, right. I wasn't there today, uh, but I will be back for the podcast tomorrow to find out more updates from you. And can you let us know where the hell Bridie Jabor is? Uh, Bridie is is, is currently stranded on uh, Lord Howe Island. Um, She's unable to get off the island because of strong winds, so she can't fly off it. Was she there for work or for holiday? Oh, she was there for work, okay. yeah. Um, and she was meant to come back on Monday, but she was unable to. So I will be manning the live blog tomorrow and I'll be talking to you about what we're here. For more great downloads, head to theguardian.com slash audio.